Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everybody. Uh, happy summer, and uh, welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. Here, uh, kind of, kind of semi upstate New York, beautiful June day, and uh, with uh, my co-host, the great Jamal Murphy, holding it down once again in Brooklyn. Murph, what's going on, man? I'm good, Bill. Can't complain. Like you said, summer's here. Uh, it's hot outside, humid. A little sweat going on here, but you know everything's good. Sweat. Yeah, man, you my, keep my, forehead, my forehead is. You know, I got a little sweat on there. But summer's here, and then. Folks is out, man. Anyway, I'll return to the show, an outstanding guest, somebody I respect so much, uh, the wonderful Soraya McDonald. Uh, she's a cultural critic at The Undefeated. Uh, she does so much stuff. Uh, a Pulitzer Prize nominee. So proud of her. I mean, that that's so wonderful. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Contributing editor at Film Comet Magazine. Also a... Uh, a contributor I uh, hear often at uh, uh, NPR. Yep. Love to hear her. Uh, love to hear her takes on things because I mean, you, you love to be praised by Sarai. You don't want to be killed by Sarai. <laughs> she doesn't like it. Yeah, stay away from that. I said, if, if, if I ever do my first play, I'll make sure I, you know, so I, I, I'll invite Sarai maybe on the fifth night. <laughs> like damn, Soraya. Anyway, Soraya. Right, right. Yeah, well, uh, you're Soraya. gonna give me the Scott Rudin treatment. Tell us about that. Oh, well, first of all, welcome, welcome, Soraya. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's that? What treatment is that? Oh, Scott Rudin. He's one of the biggest producers on Broadway, but uh, I I can't seem to get um, an invite to to any of the shows that he produces. Uh, before opening night. Why? <laughs> Probably because he didn't like what I wrote about To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> oh, what did you write to kill? What, what did you write about that? Okay. Uh, well, I took issue with the adaptation that uh, that Aaron Sorkin wrote um, that obviously before the coronavirus shutdown was doing like really, really well on Broadway and was like breaking records over and over again. Um, because he'd failed to fold in um, the revelations about Atticus Finch that Scout, his daughter, um, ends up revealing about him in Ghost at a Watchman, uh, namely how racist he is and how mm. much he actually resents um, the lawyers doing civil rights work uh, for the NAACP. Mm. Um, and instead, um, this version that is on Broadway uh, kind of memorializes the the sort of mythical Atticus Finch um, that that was made so popular not just by the novel but also by um, by Gregory Peck's portrayal um, in the film, which we now know, uh, you know, he's he's basically held held up as one of these great uh, white saviors in. American literature, and it turns out that he's he's not so great after all. Mm, mm. But that's so, a much more complicated story to tell, and I doubt there would be nearly as many white people shelling out 
the high prices that they are for Broadway tickets had they decided to go that route. What, what did the price, what did the producer say? Did he, did, were you contacted directly by him? No, he didn't contact me directly. Um, I know they did a couple of spots. Uh, Aaron Sorkin and uh, the man who plays Tom Robinson, the actor who plays Tom Robinson, uh, Gabenga Akinabe, um, did uh, an entire segment on um, the NPR show 1A, which mm. I'd been a guest on before. Mm. Um, Great show. I like that a lot. To discuss what I'd written. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just not with me there. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, but you, you know, oh, first we have to welcome in uh, the great Aaron Matthewson, who's just joined us. Uh, Hi, Aaron. Hi. You're late. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Hey, but, but, sir, I, I want to stay focused on this because I know it, it, there's so much to talk about in that regard into revisionist history. And it's so funny. And you, you, you talk about this a lot. So, our white liberal friends, you know, kind of liberal or nine, nine to five liberals. Mm-hmm. But then when you really start cutting in to stuff, really digging deep, it seems like they really do not want to face. Uh, they just don't want to, it's a simple thing, but they just don't want to face their reality or the reality that they are products of beneficiaries of a very deeply racist society. They, they benefit from it. Like you say, even with a play, they, they kind of want to say, what, what is to that? What's, what's, you know, they, they hold the thing about your show, I mean, your critique, but don't invite you because they don't want to drill down. What's, what's, what's that about? Mm. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) It's a tough reality, right? Yes. Um, I mean, I think I, you know, there are a few sort of texts that I find myself sort of returning to um, over and over again, um, you know, in search of answers for that question. I think probably the clearest one is Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. Yeah. uh, When he's talking about how uh, white moderates who, you know, who think of themselves as not being racist uh, or, or not endorsing racism um, can be some of the biggest obstacles to, to getting anything done. Um, because uh, of these concerns that they have about civility, um, about, you know, not hurting anyone's feelings, um, pretty much uh, around everything except the sort of emergency at hand, which is, <laughs> which is usually violence being enacted on Black people. Yeah, right, right, right. You, you mentioned, we talked about uh, To Kill About Revisionist History. Uh, that's an also difficult path. What, what's your... Um, your your uh, your sense or your your um, opinion or your reaction to Gone with the Wind uh, being pulled. So I mean I like the idea that it's not being pulled permanently that they're going to basically reintroduce it to HBO Max um, with some basically reframing it um, rather than sort of letting it stand as is. Um, which I think is the way that we should approach a lot of these films. Um, 
especially from the the early part of the 20th century um, that were so foundational to American filmmaking. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to be the person who's going to make the argument that says nobody ever needs to see Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation um, or some of these other really odious works, um, because I think doing so allows us to deny um, and avoid thinking about how they came to be in the first place. Um, and these are like big mainstream works. Um, the Birth of a Nation was was screened in the in the White House by Woodrow Wilson. Um, you know, films take an enormous amount of financial and human resources. They take, you know, tons of people um, getting behind, you know, one idea in order to pull something off. Um, and so that in itself says something that you have um, a studio, that you have financiers, that you have producers, um, that you have all these people who are willing to come together um, to make this thing. Um, you know, it says a lot about the mindset of the country at that particular time in terms of like what sort of ideas are seen as acceptable. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to erase that. Uh, what I do think though, is that those films um, need to be properly contextualized. Um, let's, let's talk about, you know, what's going on, you know, today, uh, you know, in front of us right now, uh, the aftermath of protests, I guess protests are still still going on. Um, you know, all these corporations coming out making statements. What's your take on where we are now, the reaction uh, to, to the George Floyd murder? Are you optimistic that this I'm very actually nervous. changed things? <laughs> I'm, ner I'm, I'm nervous because I, I realize that we are... I mean, there are a lot of things that feel different and feel different in a way... Um, that I hope is indicative of progress. Um, but there is a part of me that's very wary um, that uh, this is something that white people will just sort of like get tired of and give up on after, you know, right. six weeks or so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's the history. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so um, I, do, I mean, I... I kind of hate the corporate statements because like there's, I feel like there's no way to really do them without seeming extraordinarily canned. Um, I mean, inherent in a lot of them, you know, is this sort of passive recognition that, oh, we, we just haven't been listening or paying attention or what. It's like, where, where have you been? Right. What planet were you living on? Right. Um, <laughs> we were in the library. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, but they're all very like outward facing um, actions. And I, I really, I don't care so much about that as I care about like, the decisions that these companies make, both in the ways that they treat their employees um, and the the makeup of their staffs, um, but also the ways that they decide to interact with, um, with the rest of society um, and in ways that, you know, they can find themselves entangled 
um, and complicit in um, in mass incarceration. You know, I mean, I'd, it's sort of ridiculous. Let's say if you're, I don't know, a phone company and you're like putting forth a statement about how Black Lives Matter, um, but you're also profiting, say, from overcharging prisoners to speak with their own families. Right. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, and the hard part of of that comes down to accountability and watchdogs and, you know, a lot of the responsibility for that sort of work, which is a lot more tedious and not particularly sexy, um, usually comes down to journalists, except there are fewer and fewer and fewer who are actually like paid and can afford to do uh, this sort of work. Um, and if there's anything that's really concerning to me, it is, you know, as we have sort of this dwindling population of American journalists, um, it's all of the companies and local governments and legislatures um, that can basically, you know, sort of do whatever they want um, without necessarily having to worry too much about any sort of public oversight. So uh, what did you think about... Uh uh, the Times, uh, the, the resignation of uh, of Bennett, uh, and then just a disclosure, I mean, I worked there for like thirty something years. Uh, what did you think? Start. Of, yeah, but what, what did you what did you think of that? The, the best Go ahead and send Barry and Brett f- right behind him. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of that? Uh, the whole story of of uh, the decision to run to run the op ed uh, mm-hmm. by Senator Cotton. Mm-hmm. About sending the troops, then the the, the staff rebellion mm-hmm. that resulted in you know the editor being fired, you know stepping down, resigning. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of that relative to what you were just talking about? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you know this was basically sort of a long time in the making. The same way we're talking about these uprisings that have been taking a, taking place across the country. Um, you know, as an expression of like long and deep-seated uh, frustrations, you know, black people have found any number of you know polite, nonviolent, however you want to describe it, ways <laughs> um, to to raise the alarm about um, what's happening to us and in the various ways um, that our lives are are put in danger. Um, and that doesn't that doesn't stop just because you know you're collecting a check from a news organization if you're mm. black, right. um, and so you know I was very proud of my colleagues at the New York Times who who finally decided to stand up for themselves and say enough. Mm. Um, you know I haven't worked there, but I did work for ten years at the Washington Post, um, which has a very similar sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, makeup in terms of an ideology um, when it comes to journalism um, and how these organizations think of themselves um, and also their sort of blind spots with regard to uh, Black journalists. And so, I mean, there had been this longstanding riff, um, and particularly with the Times, because, 
you have the opinion section, which is basically given license to kind of say and do, um, you know, close to, to anything that they want. Um, and the news side is muzzled from, mm. uh, from challenging that or saying anything, um, you know, and so you can have columns <laughs> from people like Brett Stevens um, or Barry Weiss that say things that are intellectually dishonest, you know, mm. and like demonstrably, like easily demonstrably so, right? That mm. are being, that can be knocked down, um, but that are being published with the with the imprimatur of, of mm. the New York Times masthead. Mm. Um, and then you have this group of, uh, minorities in the newsroom who are basically like officially barred from from saying anything. Um, although you also have sort of a tremendous imbalance, you know, on the opinion side. I'm glad that Michelle Goldberg is writing. I'm glad that Jamil Bowie is writing. I'm glad that Michelle Alexander is writing for them. But it took ages. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think what we saw with time staffers coming out um, I think, you know, on a Friday night uh, when the Tom Cotton op-ed was published, basically calling for uh, martial law for the military to be sent in to, to attack American citizens. They summed it up, you know, very tightly by saying, publishing this op-ed puts Black New York Times staffers in danger, which it, yeah. to which it absolutely does, you know. Um, it has been a very strange couple of weeks where, you know, we were already, I think, um, I, I wasn't necessarily feeling great about every time I had to leave my house, you know, when we were just dealing with coronavirus. Right. right. <laughs> uh, you know, and having to put on a mask and just feeling, um, you know, really anxious. Um about leaving the house, you know, when you have this global pandemic, when you're in the midst of this global pandemic that is disproportionately um, killing black and brown people. And then you add on top of that, um, here in New York and Brooklyn, um, after, uh, after George Floyd is killed um, and these protests really start to, um, to build up um, and size and scope across the nation and the world, um, what happens here is that like the NYPD basically just floods into black neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy. Um, you know, I think some of the most vicious barbarism that you saw from the NYPD took place in Brooklyn and in the Bronx. Right. Um, and so, you know, I find myself a person, you know, with some relative privilege, um, being, you know, for a couple of weeks, feeling terrified uh, to leave my own apartment. Uh, you know, I was telling Jamal earlier uh, today that, you know, the the park by my house that I'm so used to being able to go to, um, you know, I stepped outside one Saturday morning. It's a beautiful day. Uh, and there are two police officers stationed at every entrance to the park. Mm. This is not something that makes me feel safer. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is just something that makes me feel like I live in a police state. Mm. Um, and so, you know. They, 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 were there, they were stationed there ostensibly for what purpose? 
you know, I'm not really sure. I don't know if they're there to make sure people don't get out of hand, which is, I don't know why anybody would be doing that at sort of like 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. You know, everyone there I saw, you know, you have families with their kids playing in the park, um, you know, people walking their dogs, people sunning themselves. But by and large, the folks I saw who seemed to be able to actually like relax and just sort of spread out on the grass and enjoy themselves were white people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my instinct uh, when I see um, NYPD officers, particularly in a context like this, um, you know, where the mayor had basically ordered this curfew um, is that like, I don't want to be anywhere in their vicinity. Right. Um, and so, you know, hell, even a year ago, um, I think for a Black New York Times journalist to say that publicly, they likely would have been reprimanded um, for publicly expressing some sort of bias, um, regardless of the fact that for so many Black Americans, that's the truth of our lived experience. Um, And I think what's additionally frustrating um, is for those of us, you know, who are really committed um, to to journalism as a calling um, and who see it as a vehicle for seeking truth um, and speaking truth to power um, and see ourselves as, you know, the fourth estate as a vital part of um, a healthy democracy. <laughs> uh, it's it's very disheartening um, when the institution that's supposed to be, you know, the apotheosis of all those values um, is really uh, sort of letting their staffers down and their readers um, by by skirting around the truth, mm. um, whether it's in the form of you know these really sort of convoluted euphemisms mm. um, that they employ instead of saying words like racism or right. white supremacy uh, or lie, <laughs> um, mm. you know. But that also shows up in other ways. I think you know one of the things that was so frustrating about that Tom Cotton op-ed. Um, wasn't just what he was advocating, but was also the process um, that occurred for that article to be published. Right. You, know? um, you basically have James Bennett, the editor of the Times Opinion section. You have an op-ed from a sitting U.S. senator, and this man is basically admitting that he didn't even read it before it was yeah. published. Well, that was awful. Um, now, if someone who looked like me or who looked like any of you had done that. Like we couldn't do that. No, we could (laughs) not do that. Right. There's no, um, there's no coming back from that, uh, for one of us. And, you know, as this story began to unfurl, um, I think one of the things that was also really frustrating was seeing how, um, the sort of journalistic firmament had been, protecting James Bennett for some time. Um, There had been quite a few uh, serious complaints against him um, when he, during his time, um, when he was an editor at The Atlantic, um, Mm. particularly when it came into sort of um, 
at the way that he was uh, affecting coverage of stories that he was actually supposed to stay out of due to conflicts of interest. Um, the way that he spoke about um, women and minority employees, uh, you know, there was um, a managing editor there, Jennifer Barnett, who basically uh, told the Washington Post in a profile that they did of James and Michael Bennett, um, you know, I think October of 2019, that she left journalism because of this man. Mm. And it didn't seem to raise any flags at the Times um, until finally, um, you know, you have this collective action from Black journalists, um, you know, at the Grey Lady uh, on social media because, you know, I've, I've been privy to those newsroom meetings where you try over and over again to be heard and nothing changes. Um, and so then your only recourse is public embarrassment because you've tried everything else. Mm. You know, Soraya, and I kind of want to piggyback off of something you said earlier and ask you and, and everybody else a couple of questions. Um, you know, you brought up, Soraya, that... Um, about how feeling not safe when you see police at the at the park, and um, I'm so I'm in Harlem, and it's been interesting because in my neighborhood, they there was like this little sliver of a like a park, if you want to call it that, that was closed off because of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. I think it was primarily like homeless folks and maybe folks who were like um, use drugs or whatever were over there for the most part. They closed off that park, and. So, you know, where the, where, I don't know where they thought the city thought these people were going to go. Um, and so they go to like the near the other apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, I guess I live in a mixed building, but I, I think it's fair to say it's predominantly black. And it's been so interesting to see my neighbors call the police more often and like want more security, which I think is really fascinating. Um, Cause I guess there's been like, whew, right? Like it's been this, this whole discussion while we're having this discussion about police, uh, you know, accountability, it's like I'm seeing black people want the police, but I feel right. like we want we want to, them to treat people fairly and humanely. And then you add mm-hmm. on homelessness and drugs and whatever, and I feel like that gets so messy. And then two, you said about corporations. I guess NBC News just put out an alert that I guess NBC and MSNBC are now going to be capitalizing black. <laughs> and I know that's so yeah. How do you guys feel about that? Do you, does that make you feel more special? I'm so curious. <laughs> I quite. do not care. I, Good you man. know, I mean, again, like that, that feels so <laughs> cosmetic, right? Exactly. Like hire a qualified black journalist to replace Andy Lack. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there are enormous structural changes that need to take place in these newsrooms, uh, not only when it comes to um, beefing up the numbers of women and minority journalists um, who are working there, um, both you know in leadership positions and otherwise, um, but also ensuring that they're paid the same as their white counterparts, um, that they're actually given the resources to implement the sort of changes in coverage that need to take place, um, as opposed to, you know, just installing someone and then basically, you know, setting them up to fail, right? Putting them on a a glass cliff 
um, because you have sort of this like one symbolic person um, who is expected uh, to basically like be the source of all this change and then has no resources to, to implement it. Um, which is why I'm really interested to see what happens um, at Harper's Bazaar, right? Because like the other sort of big media institution um, that we saw where like the, <laughs> uh, the workers were basically just in widespread revolt on Twitter was Condé Nast and rightfully so, right? Like, I mean, there's all sorts of skeletons hiding in that closet, you know, when it comes to... Um, who was getting paid to appear in Bon Appetit videos and who was not. Um, you know, the way that Adam Rappaport, who's the, the previous or the former um, editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, was treating his Black assistant, um, you know, who he had doing everything from him, just like cleaning his golf clubs, um, you know, basically having to be on call um, and just put up with his sort of banal everyday racism. Like when she asked him how he liked his coffee and he said, like Rihanna. Mm. Um, oh boy. And this woman was getting paid $35,000 a year and expected to live in New York and deal with all of this. Um, those are the sorts of things uh, that have to be like completely upended and, and tossed into the sea. Um, so, you know, a, a copy editing change, you know, I mean, that's nice, I guess. It's a gesture. Um, but that is like the very, 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 very yeah. beginning. I'm, I, mean, you, I mean, you said it perfectly in terms of all these changes, all these statements are cosmetic changes and cosmetic statements. And, you know, real change is... Real is change dawn. means white people have to give up a significant yeah. amount of their power. Right, and, and how, how realistic is that? Well, I mean, that, yeah. go ahead. I mean, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. We're I there. Mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, it's, so, it's so deep because, you know, you had, a, you had a great thread a few days ago, you know, breaking down all these, all these uh, you know, racism in, journal, in journalism, and, and it's like that in all industries, right? right? Yes. You know, it's mm-hmm. interesting to me how, you know, the, the protests themselves, they start with, you know, it's about George Floyd. Then it's about it's also about police murder and brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, it's it's more than that, right? Because mm-hmm. like, it becomes about Trump and it becomes about racism in general and all these industries. Right. And you know, when you talk about journalism, you, you know, you spoke about the pay gaps: uh, women of color making thirty thousand a year less than white men. Uh, white editors questioning black journalists on basic American history because they don't. You know, they don't take the time to, to learn about it themselves. Uh, the, the tremendous stress that black journalists have in the workplace. I mean, you could almost like a oh, yeah. TSD situation yeah. uh, comes of it. And, um, you know, fear of, of retaliation, if you, if you point it out, that's in every industry. Mm-hmm. Um, white editors softening the tone of, of, of our articles because they don't, mm-hmm. they don't understand it. I mean, there's just so much. And like you said, um, it's going to take white people and white liberals, you know, so-called liberals, still giving up some of their privilege. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, your thread, you, talked you, about, you talked about opportunity hoarding, where, yeah, you know, white, yes. white, white liberal point. resistance to integration, you know, of their children's schools and their neighborhoods. So, I mean, it's, they're going to have to give up a lot. But, but you might, you know, it's right, you said it before, you might think, I was going to say, in fact, on our meeting, uh, our staff meeting, uh, Sarai, you know, it seems like there's this thing of black people 
We want to hear from white people. We want, well, what are the white people think? <laughs> that. We know what the fuck they think. You know, and I, I was going to say, I said, no, I, said, yeah, I am not following white people in the battle. I, you got to no. be nuts. You know, I've been through that story before. When, like you said, they get tired. Okay. You know, they get t- kind of tired of this. It's time to go back to Yale. Even or, the ones who are yeah. really with it are crazy. Uh, I'm in fact, which is why I'm kind of looking forward to this John Brown miniseries that's coming to oh, premium cable. It's either HBO or Showtime. I can't mm. remember which one. Um, but Ethan Hawke is playing John Brown. Um, you have David Diggs playing Frederick Douglass. Mm. Uh, and just in the trailer alone, like they make sure to make it very clear, like even like black people who wanted to be free thought this guy was nuttier <laughs> than squirrel poop. <laughs> 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 I never heard that before. Nutty and squirrel. <laughs> we have to use that. One. Very nice, Soraya. <laughs> oh, Soraya has such a way with words. Oh, con- I can't take credit for that. Like that's literally like whoever wrote that line. Who does to that? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but you apply. Like I'm listening to you know the uh, the description of how they've taken over. I mean, I, I guess white people have this god complex. You know, and it's almost no matter what we gotta, it's gotta have to be in control. You know, even mm-hmm. even at the White House now that you know they set it up as this safe hate. You know, and I'm listening to this, and I'm saying these white people. You know, where to the point that I, in the early days of of the um, you know of demonstrating, they would put the white people up front. Mm-hmm. You know, so they wouldn't get bashed. Well, by definition. What you're talking about is black lives not mattering, you know, to the extent that we got to right. put you guys in front. They're not going to beat you as hard mm-hmm. as they're going to beat us. So, Which I witnessed like here, um, you know, because I live on like a, a major thoroughfare um, and the protests, you know, uh, at least a couple of nights this week have come up um, my street and I've noticed um like there's a very sort of deliberate way that they're structured where you have um, bicyclists um, basically in the front and the back um, who are uh, most of them white, but not all of them um, who are basically sort of acting um, as a physical buffer um, between um, black protesters who are walking in the middle um, and the police who are either following them um or who may be you know up ahead um and you know considering you know just the different um examples that we've seen whether it's an officer like pulling down someone's mask to pepper spray them Mm. um folks getting pulled off their bicycles and beaten um just as they're trying to go home um Mm. you know the kettling that took place in the bronx um where you have police officers basically like deliberately boxing uh protesters in so that they can't go anywhere um and then say that they were being violent or they were resisting arrest or whatever. Mm. Um, and you have all of these ways that, that they're enacting this violence. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, if I was one of those protesters, I'm not gonna say no to a white person who is going to, you know, um, who is going right. to step up and sort of put their literal body on the line. But yeah, but um, unfortunately we need that 
uh, in and everyday life. How about when I go to the bodega? Exactly. Can, can you can you come you know ride your bike in front of me? Maybe that'll be a new that'll be a new, new hustle. Get a white and hey, I'm going I'm going to uh, I'm going to Starbucks. Now, can you come and kind of shield Which me? Which is awful, right? right. No, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, but again, it just speaks to this whole conversation about they have Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's the whole thing. And just saying, well, we need you know it's the white lives that really matter. You know, well, I think that's why we saw um, why this time appears to be maybe somewhat different um, because you have all of these examples, like they're beating white journalists' asses. They don't care. Yeah, right. right, right. Um, you know, you have Linda Torado is a photojournalist, you know, who's now blind in one eye because she was yeah. shot with a bar bullet. Um you know, you have, yeah, you have all these very, like, visible examples um, of white journalists as well as Black journalists, you know, who are getting beaten up, who are getting arrested on camera, um, which, like, finally taps into, right. I think, a fear in the media. They're like, oh, it's not, oh, they, oh they're going to treat us like that, too. That's right. right. That's right. And now they're... <laughs> That's right. And right, because the thing yeah. is, is that like systemic racism and fascism are not that different. It's just well, the fascism it's, also applies to white people. And I, I think here the 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 a lot of white people are in denial. I think the the astute white people, the ones who went down to Mississippi, Alabama, said, "Well, no matter what I feel about black folks, this stuff is coming for me." <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this is this is much larger. It's not like I'm in love with black folks, but this is not. The America yes. I signed up for, and, and and once they get rid, I remember Don King of all people told me that he said, you know what? He said if, if black people and brown people disappear, white people will probably within six months destroy each other, <laughs> you know? Because oh I mean, because he was saying we're this buffer, and you could sort of be in the now. Well, this is a black issue, right. or even now you see it. You know, when when with them saying the coronavirus, well, it mostly affects black and brown people. So now you've got all these people hitting the beach and acting like, and I think underlying they're saying, well, you know, really, it really affects black and brown people. So it doesn't really, you know, it really doesn't right. affect me. And, the capitalist totem pole. It's yeah. gonna, it, you know, it's, even if it were all white people, they're going to, you know, someone has to be on the bottom. Exactly. Somebody's got to be on the bottom. And, and eventually it's going to be you. White people who don't think that that's true. But wait a minute, you mean me? Yeah, you. <laughs> you. Right. They don't care if you are like 70, you can be a 75-year-old man, a 75-year-old white man in Buffalo right. and, and get knocked over and be bleeding from your head and have these, I, right. and, and, what amount of stormtroopers right. just like marching past. Right. And, and, and the guy tried to help them. Remember, he must have been mm-hmm. a rookie. Remember, the guy yeah. who was going to help him, and the office pushed him along. Said no. Yeah. Uh, and then you and you have the you know you have Trump uh, backing these people up. What role do you do you would you specifically uh, apply to Trump in this? I mean, obviously, stuff like this has been happening. Was happened with all presidents. He's not the only. He's not the only racist president we've ever had by far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what role do you think he actually he's he's playing in this? I mean, I don't think he's making anything better. <laughs> Um, that's for sure yeah i mean you know and certainly there are these kind of surface um comparisons to 1968 Mm -hmm. um which are totally understandable um you know as much as this feels 
this moment feels like we have our hair on fire um, and and feels really uh, important in terms of um, making a decision about what the future of the country is going to be. Um, you know, there's also a blueprint for a lot of this stuff. You know, the National Guard, um, you know, was called in and, and murdered students at Kent State um, yep. and at Jackson State. Yeah, South um, Carolina, so yeah. Um, you know, that sort of state violence that he is openly calling for um, is not unprecedented. Um, that doesn't make it, like, any less frightening. Right. Um, I think what is particularly um, concerning uh, is this lack of of just any sort of accountability or um, or really like any way to sort of guard against his worst impulses, um, you know, and, and you see people who are sort of uh, dealing with that after the fact, like after you have these protesters um, who are tear gassed so that he can have a photo op in front of this church in Washington, you know, then you have, um, military leaders saying, "Oh, I shouldn't have participated in that." <laughs> That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. After the fact, yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, my bad. You know, you know the white apology. The the, uh, the I'm so sorry. You know, they, I said you guys have become experts in that four years of I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, and I mean it, it's really, um, you know, every day there is a new development. Um, you know, that kind of lets us know that there's just this huge sort of federal leadership vacuum. Um, and I, you know, I don't say this lightly, but when you have this man's cabinet around him mm. and all of these people around him who are aware of the implications of him following sort of his worst instincts and his worst impulses, they know um, they know how much harm that could do, um, but they have not invoked the 25th Amendment to remove him uh, from office. No, in, fact, uh, in, fact, he's, in fact, he's furthering their cause. That's, that's the only way you can look at it. If you, right. you know, if you do not, you, know, you can say you disagree or, you know, you could say, you know, I'm with him for another reason or whatever, you know, judges. And, and even that in itself is, is, is racist, though. You know, when you, yes. think of, you know, if you want those type of judges in there, that's racism. You know, so, I mean, there's no there's no way around. Some of whom are like not even are not even barely qualified. Well, that's the, that's the thing. That's the thing, too, with, with Trump. Um, are, you know, could this be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching here, but but could this be a rock bottom? Like have oh, to have God. someone so, you know, not even intelligent enough to hide where he's coming from. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, because um, we've, we've had like we've witnessed right, we've so had some rock bottoms. Yeah, we have some rock bottoms. No question. I, I know that, that, um, yeah. And you know what I think about now is so at this point there have been like multiple um, news organizations who have reported about his campaign staff buying ads time and space in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which hasn't voted like for a Republican since what, I think like 1961 or something. Um, but that's because the audience, they have an intended audience of one. Like they're literally buying ad space to get him to behave less crazily because they know how much TV he watches. <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. You know, you know, but I mean, I think this goes back to something you said at the very beginning um, about, you know, protecting white privilege. And I think that the, you know, and we talk about sharing and people saying at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where I'm Democrat or Republican. If I'm white and white privilege is, is about, you know, my kids getting their spot in school or, or all the things that white privilege means, you know, uh, the, the, the favorable this, the favorable that. And, and this, you know, and, and the president is saying, you don't have to vote for me, but you better vote for yourself. Do you want to give up white privilege? Do you want to, do you want to sh- actually share your wealth? Do you, you know, and a lot of people, our friends, your liberal friends, say, no, <laughs> you know, I want to get that promotion. I want to, you know, I, I benefit from, I'm sure. from, I mean, I benefit from this privilege. You can yeah. me, you ask me to give it up, you know, I mean, I'll march for, for a few weeks. New but, York is one of the most liberal cities in the country. And yet it's also, you know, its schools are, are among the most segregated. You know, Nicole Hannah-Jones has talked about this you know, yeah. at length. Um, and when you go to uh, these public hearings that are basically set up to, you know, determine sort of the future um, of these schools, uh, it's, you know, it is white New Yorkers yeah. who are, um, who are fighting like very, very hard to keep things the way that they are. Damn. Right. Gentrification. Yeah. I mean, just look at the neighborhoods, uh, you know, the schools, the schools do not, you know, you know, quote unquote, improve until, yeah. until mm-hmm. there's a, almost a white majority in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even the neighborhoods, like I've heard in my building that things didn't get fixed. If you're, if the hot water was off, it'd be off for a while. But once white people moved in, that stuff part happened mm-hmm. faster. But yeah. I wanted to ask you guys kind of, so am I getting it that, that you're kind of feeling like will never really be supported by white people? Because I've been, I don't know if you guys have seen it. There's this, this debate, I guess, about, it's new to me, um, about allyship versus being an accomplice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, is that at all something to be excited about or is it not so much? I mean, I... oh boy. <laughs> it... Right. I, I don't know. I re- like I I would like to hope that we can deviate from this pattern before, you know, before everything really goes off a cliff. Um, <laughs> you know, I you know, cuz it's not like like there are other um instances in which really horrible people were allowed to to rise to power um and and terrible things happened as a result you know in 2016 um in november you know once i finally left my house after the election one of the first places that i went to was the holocaust museum Mm. um 
And of course, there's that quote there from from Martin Niemöller, um, you know, that says, first they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Right. right. And that, that's that's just what, you know, Bill was talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, when you talk about what we should expect to happen, should we expect uh, that things will change, that, that white people will truly be our allies? I mean, it's, it wouldn't be an, an intelligent, it wouldn't be smart for us to think so. What, what, you know, when you look back, it has never happened before. You know, why, why would we think that? So it's almost like, you know, it's like you'd have to show me that. I'd have to see that for the first time in order yeah. to in order to believe that that you know that people were capable of that and i think i mean i'm not i would i would like to be more encouraged but i mean like there are just there are so many different battlegrounds right like one being that we're all not even working from like the same set of facts um because you know, it's it's not difficult to be a white person who grows up and maybe um, in an environment where you are always in the majority when you go to school, um, you know, whatever extracurriculars you participate in or whatever. Um, but that also means that there are all these ways that your experience is left unchallenged, right? Particularly in education. And so, you know, I remember when I was growing up um, and starting in school in first grade or whatever, and basically learning, um, you know, the myths uh, that are sort of foundational about our country, whether it's, you know, Christopher Columbus, you know, sailing the ocean in 1492, whether it is the story of Thanksgiving, um, whether it is, um, you know, George Washington and, and his cherry tree, you know, all of these things um, that provide this foundation of how um, we think about these really like deeply flawed men um, who, are, who are important in our history, um, but it's often, you know, a lot of times those things aren't necessary. like those sort of complicating narratives aren't necessarily part of regular educational curricula. Like a lot of those things were things that I learned from reading on my own, right? When I learned, you know, when I read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States or right. um, as I got older, you know, and I started reading the work of, of Black feminists in particular. Um, so we really have to think about, like, just how we come to and define, like, a basic truth when it comes to the history of the United States, which we haven't even been able to do with the Civil War. <laughs> right. 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 Good luck. Good luck with that. Um, you know, but I think even though she she's not the nominee and she didn't win, I think there is significance in having a white woman like Elizabeth Warren, who's from Oklahoma, 
um, you know, who's a senator from Massachusetts, which is home to one of the most racist cities in America, um, going out and being really excited and cheerful about big structural change. (laughs) Um, Because so often like the messaging around that, which we know is necessary, um, you know, Republicans, the right is really good at saying, these things are scary. And here are all the ways that they are scary. And like, if these people come to power, you better make sure that you are armed to the teeth because right. there's going to be like roving bands of black people and Mexicans and God knows who's else like coming to rob you and rape your daughters and and just do, you know, just enact all sorts of chaos and hell. Um, but we love them on the football field. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. you, you know, you have this sort of really like nerdy professorial lady, you know, she's fairly slight in stature, who is just like, I am really excited about big structural change. Um, and, it, you know, we're going to need, like, a lot more of those. <laughs> do you think, um, uh, as we wind down, but do, do you think uh, Elizabeth Warren would make a good running mayor? That's sort of the million-dollar question. That's going to be the big news of the summer, is that right. uh, yeah. who, um, who will be chosen as Biden's running mate and now it gets in the weed well is it going to be a first is going to be a woman is right. it going to be a woman of color is it going to be a black woman who's it going to be and right. then you yeah. know what your, your thoughts on i mean you talk about elizabeth warren what, what do yeah you, i don't know i mean i i think who are you she betting on? would be an excellent <laughs> vice president i also see i mean i also understand the argument for um for keeping her in the senate and you know if if Mitch McConnell is defeated and the Democrats take the Senate, um, you know, her being Senate majority leader, um, you know, because one of the things, like she is actually really effective at creating policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she is the mastermind behind the CFPB, which when it is like funded properly um, and isn't sort of, uh, and hasn't been, um, hasn't had its teeth taken away the way it has with this administration, works really well um, when it comes to advocating for consumers. Um, You know, that is, she is really good at that sort of stuff. Um, At the same time, you know, there's, it's obvious that like her being vice president um, could, um, you know, set her up for another presidential run, especially if Biden, you know, sticks to his, you know, his promise to to serve for one term and then step aside. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there are plenty of qualified women, right. um, which is a wonderful thing to be able to say, right? Like you have Kamala Harris, um, you know, Stacey Abrams, obviously, both of whom are just like tremendously intelligent people. Um, I think, you know, when I think about Stacey Abrams, um, you know, one of the things that has like deeply, deeply bothered me, um, even before 2016, um, is like we have a crisis when it comes to gerrymandering and voter suppression, Mm. Um, you know, that also ends up becoming even more of a problem um, 
when you take into consideration that we have a census this year um, and that a lot of people, um, because of the fear that they have about being torn from their families or their homes, may not respond to the census, even though we really, really need them to. Um, because we have, you know, because we have a president who doesn't really operate with any sort of regard for pre-existing laws or norms. Um, and so while part of me is like, yes, Stacey Abrams would make a great vice president, you know, there's another part of me that's like, we need some sort of, um, you know, election czar um, and not like Ken right. Cuccinelli, <laughs> like not yeah. someone who is looking out for voter fraud, but basically because the Voting Rights Act has been gutted, you know, you, you need um, an effort that can really focus on dismantling voter suppression, um, on getting rid of these horribly gerrymandered districts where you have state, state legislators who are basically choosing their constituents instead of having their constituents choose them. Um, to the point now that, I mean, you know, there is software that you have um, legislators using to draw up these maps because they know exactly like how far they can go um, in sort of crafting these districts without raising um, an alarm in federal court so that they'll still pass muster. Um, and that is... You know, that, it, that feels like really challenging and wonky. Um, and yet like one of the films that I saw this year that has given me sort of like the greatest amount of enthusiasm and hope in like small D democracy um, is called Slay the Dragon. And it's this amazing documentary about how activists in Michigan um, who didn't have a ton of experience, you know, were kind of like naive, didn't know how difficult things would be, but managed to, um, to come together um, and defeat gerrymandering in Michigan. <laughs> um, and these are like regular people. These are not like folks who have been sort of like in, you know, organizing and political work for years upon years upon years. These are people who are just like, I'm fed up with this. We're going to figure it out. Um, and so I, I, it was meant to have like this enormous theatrical opening, particularly for a documentary um, in April. And that got stymied because of coronavirus. Um, and if there's, if there's anything that, uh, you know, I regret among um, all of the things that we've sort of like missed out on um, because of coronavirus, like that one I think is, is a really, really um, important one because they'd already sort of, the distributor had already sort of um, invested all of these resources into releasing this film like theatrically um, and promoting it that way. Um, that there wasn't really, a whole lot of time or resources to sort of pivot to video on demand. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, it is available to stream this year and certainly before November. Um, I think it's, it's one of the most important films that will probably come out. What's the name of it again? Slay the Dragon. Slay the Dragon. Uh, our guest is the wonderful Soraya McDonald. She's uh, my colleague, cultural critic, 
if the undefeated uh, Pulitzer Prize nominee. Um, you can hear her work on NPR. She's also the contributing editor at the film Comet Magazine. We're going to be back in two minutes. Uh, and uh, we'll come back uh, before Swire uh, leaves us. I want to know um, a couple things. The films, you just mentioned one. But films, do you, the source of your optimism, <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some things or films or books or something that yeah. give you a source of uh, optimism. And then um, there's another question that escaped me because uh, I was like, like, whoa. So anyway, we're going to come back uh, in, in two seconds with the wonderful Soraya McDonald. Once again, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For you, the listeners of the Bill Roden on Sports podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports for your free audiobook. Uh, we're back with the wonderful Soraya uh, McDonald. Soraya, you, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, we could, I think particularly you're black in this country, you know, you could just have the blues every single day. Uh, mm-hmm. But I always think back, you talk about Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, is no day at the beach uh, for, <laughs> for, for my grandfather, you know, um, served in World War One and before that. And, you know, I think about these things and, you know, we think about how th- this dismal circumstance, but I keep thinking about, man, what was it like in 1990? I mean, mm-hmm. like for, for my grandfather, great grandfather, they had no shot. There was yeah. no reason for them to wake up in the morning and be optimistic, yet they either were or they found a way to look forward to the next day. Mm-hmm. As rough as we've got it, you go back in those times yeah. and you're like, whoa, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there have to be some, some string that connects them with us just in terms of pushing on, moving forward, finding a reason Oh, absolutely. Look forward to the next day. What is that reason for you? And and I, I also want to talk to you about your art, which is the art of the critic. How do, how does that figure in into your sense of resistance? Um, well, let's see. To start in terms of like the things that, that give me hope or give me some optimism, um, I would say, um, like for me, it, it, usually it's art. Um frankly uh you know a couple of years ago or actually not even a couple of years ago but like last year um there was this amazingly provocative messy um just deeply intellectual play on Broadway um by a playwright named Jeremy O'Harris who had written this play called Slave Play um in which you know he dared to tackle a bunch of taboos and do so with satire um and like I think one of the things that's really enduring about that particular play um is that has stuck with me and I've I've seen it in two iterations I saw it on Broadway and I saw it previously at New York Theater Workshop 
um, is how vociferously and unapologetically it shows white people to themselves. And it does so literally, like it is part of the design of the show. Um, the set is actually mirrored mm. <laughs> so that as they're sitting, <laughs> Uh, you're not just watching the play happen, but you're also watching other people watch the play. Hmm. Um, and I mean, again, like one of the great shames of this era of coronavirus is that the Tonys have been pushed back. Um, I don't know if they're going to happen at all this year uh, because, you know, the Broadway season is basically truncated. So um but, you know, he certainly would have been at the very least nominated um, for best play. You know, one of the other things that gives me, um, you know, energy and fuel, um, uh, particularly these days, is music. Mm. Um, you know, I don't write about music very often, um, but certainly just like that is where I'm finding you know, joy and joy that is, um, that's not naive. Um, There's very much like recognizing the situation that we're in. Um, so Janelle Monae's last album. Um, I was going to ask you, know, you what, I, I was going to ask you what you were listening to. Yeah. Um, you know, I basically kind of, you know, made a little like casual, like uh, just <laughs> defiance playlist for myself. Please, please share it with us. Um, exactly. I'd, please. <laughs> I'd, you know, it's a lot of Kendrick Lamar. It's, you know, it's Beyonce. It's the NWA. It's Public Enemy. Uh, it's like um, um, any Chuck Berry there. Sorry. You gotta go, you gotta go old school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some, you know, there's a lot of Marvin Gaye in there too. Oh yeah, yeah, that's timeless, right? What's yeah. going on? I remember um, mm-hmm. in the midst of, you know, back in the day, the, the you know, the Temptations, America, mm-hmm. and then, yeah. and then Mar- uh, Marvin Gaye hits this, turns the whole thing around mm-hmm. with what's going on, mm-hmm. and we're like, even whoa, some, even, even some James, <laughs> even some James Brown. A little bit, a little black, and I'm proud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, really? Wait, really? <laughs> I, I actually, I actually saw someone uh, on the streets in, in Brooklyn. I forget where exactly. Maybe like Nostrand Avenue. I saw some some somebody blasting. I'm I'm black and I'm proud on, on a uh, on a motorcycle. It was great. <laughs> but go, going back to what you were saying, Bill, about you know just just the history of us as a people. Um, you know, looking back on generations and how they were able to 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 wake up in the morning and, and keep at it. You know, I, I saw um, Cheryl and Eiffel, um, the head of the, of the Legal Defense Fund, uh, say something yeah. that, that rang true with me. You know, there's never been, like, giving up has never been part of our narrative. Never. You know, yeah. you know, throughout all we've gone through uh, from, you know, no matter what, you know, uh, part of history we're talking about, giving up has never, you know, been a part of that. Uh, so, I mean... You know, it's who we are. We're we're going to keep fighting and, and trying to make trying to make things better, right? And there's I mean, so much brilliance <coughs> that we've already contributed. Like even <laughs> even under you know the circumstances of the last 400 years, um, or because of them, because of the because of that, right. right? Yeah, that that is so magnificent 
um, and, and says so much about us, you know, like whether it is Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit or Martha and, is Martha and the Vandellas who do Dancing in the Street? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, our colleague, our undefeated colleague, Lone O'Neill, um, you know, published a piece recently um, about the woman who was sort of apprehended by a security guard. Uh, and she's like, you going to lose, you about to lose your job. Right. And then that gets <laughs> turned into a remix, right. um, you know, and, and she has this really powerful kicker about how, you know, our, our best weapon um, is black joy, which is, which is very much true when you're talking about sort of existential threats, like authoritarianism and, and fascism, um, you know, the thing that, that those sort of ideologies thrive off of is fear and despair. Um, and so finding ways to feel triumphant, to be confident, to be joyful um, are really important. I think that's actually probably like one of the most powerful things about these, these giant protests that are still taking place. Um, is that like if you've ever marched a protest, like one of the things that you learn about that they kind of become addictive because right. everybody is so nice. Yeah. You know, right. like because you're you're there, you're outside in the fresh air, you are you are marching for a common goal, you're like yelling and screaming, you're getting your endorphins up. Um, you know, and you know, there's obviously you know and you're you are exercise you're exercising your first amendment right um as a citizen of the united states um but you know like one of the moments where i actually you know finally felt just sort of held and lifted up um after 2016 was at the women's march yeah right you know because um because these really powerful negative forces that exist in the world feed so much off of us feeling like we're isolated yes from each other right that we're alone and so when you go out and you see these massive crowds of people um like that that gives me even if they don't all get it <laughs> in right. one form or another there is at least a baseline of of love and recognition of humanity and that that is worth protecting. Um, and that is the thing that, that keeps me going. Before, before we get out of here, I got to ask you, I got to ask you what you thought of, uh, of the Democrats in Congress wearing the, oh, the Kenton cloth. Oh man. Wait, what? <laughs> what were they wearing? Bill, you didn't see that? <laughs> no, what were they wearing? Kenton the cloth? You didn't see that? <laughs> I gotta I gotta ask you uh what you what what was your first thought when, when you saw that? So I think it was actually very similar to what Estad Herndon ended up tweeting, which was like something to the effect of like what like president of the black student union of some <laughs> PWI put this together. <laughs> I'm wondering if it was a black co- I ha- did it ha- what is a it had to be a black congressman who's like there's no like who Stafford did this. Yeah, I mean, and then, then it I felt a, like very like PWI graduation in 1996. Right, <laughs> yeah, it, was, right. it, it made me wince, you know. I was just like, mm. what? 
But here's, 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 a, like... here's a question though. If, um, <laughs> wince. Say, it maybe it maybe wince. But if what would what would black people like? Let's say the let's say the roles were reversed, right? What what would black people wear to honor white people? Mm, the roles were reversed. Good, that's a good question. I don't even want to say. <laughs> that's a good. That, 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 yeah, that, that can go a lot of different places, Jamal. Yeah. It, just made, it just made me think. What a polo shirt? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, you wear khaki, khaki <laughs> like in a, khakis and like a you know, like a. I, I, let's not even. Go yeah, the, I mean, I guess <laughs> like the uniform of Charlottesville was white khakis. Oh, uh, true. Yeah, yeah. Khaki. White polo Charlottesville. shirt. Charlottesville. I didn't think a, of Charlottesville. And a MAGA hat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wore. I wore that. I remember. So it's, I, I, you know, I went to school. I was born in Chicago, but for a few years, it was a little place like Phoenix, Illinois. And so I went to his Catholic school, uh, Ascension. There's proof I've got my graduate. Anyway, so of course I was like one or two black people there, and of course all the white boys would wear like the khaki, mm. the khaki uh, uh, the, the thing, white socks right. and black shoes. And so I remember it was time for me to go to Harlem in Chicago, right? And so I remember the first, <laughs> the first day of fucking school. I remember I walked across the park. I got my little khaki. Khaki oh, shirt, white shirt. And this brother, this brother, before I got to school, when he got to school, he said, man, you know, we don't wear that shit anymore. You know, <laughs> I, I remember he told me that was the last day. He, he, I remember for the time to go across, this brother took me and just like schooled me. I remember he didn't stop me. Like, he just like signified and like that. By the time I hit the I said, shit, I'm going to go home immediately. <laughs> Cause he just immediately told me that brother, you know, no man, you uh, in the big league, you in the big leagues now. We don't wear this shit here, and that was it for me. But you're right, that would be our uniform, our, uh, you know, you know, khaki, khaki. khaki. It's a it's a tribute. It's a tribute. <laughs> oh my god! But what music would you? What music uh, would please. you? Have? Then I can't answer that. I can't answer the music. No, he, I'd be having like like the Beach Boy. No, Sherry, the Four Seasons, Sherry. Anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You guys, uh, anyway, listen, uh, uh, before we leave, Aaron, you know, you always, you know, have something to contribute. Uh, do you have any parting things that you want to leave us with? Upbeat, by the way. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, this sounds cheesy, but uh, I look forward to talking with you guys each week. I think... Um, I'm grateful to be able to kind of like hash out these ideas and not go crazy and keep them in my head. Also, I watched uh, the Michelle Obama documentary on Netflix uh, last night. On being, yeah. And, you know, it, it, I don't know I call it profound, but it was beautiful. Like, it just made me really happy to see her and to see, like, Black people being happy and she's, like, trying to empower young and older women. Like, it was just... It was really nice. And I, it made me think I'd love to know, I'd love to hear what she has to say right now. Mm. Mm. Um, well, give me a, I've watched Food Hacks. I've started watching Food Hacks. My brother who lives in Germany, uh, we have our family calls. And so he said uh, to one of my nephews, Kyle, who started, he said, you gotta watch Food Hacks. I started watching Food Hacks. This is a black woman, um, somebody who's sane, black woman living in London, uh, you know, she, you know, and it's her whole thing about cooking for her three kids and mm-hmm. turning around really, you know, quick dishes in the morning or in the, you know, quick thing, food hacks, no violence. <laughs> no violence. You know, I, I took notes. 
what about you, Jamal? And we'll end with Sarajah about what lifts us up. Your sense, of, what is your sense of optimism? Wow. Your source, your source of optimism. Source of optimism. Assuming I mean, your optimism. Well, you got two beautiful. Yeah, that's kids, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's that's truly my source of optimism. My my two young sons, um, you know, and just like you said, you know, like we talked about earlier, and just in terms of, you know, we don't, you know, black people don't give up. Um, you know, we we make we make the best of any situation. Uh, I think I think things will get better, but it's gonna, you know, it's on us as much. I mean, we have to keep fighting. It's all about right. You know. We have to keep fighting and 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 become become more and more unified if possible. And I know it's not an easy thing. It's not like you know we're just. It's not like we're in this fight by ourselves with no with no opponent, as you always say, Bill. I mean, we have people. There are people um, on on the other side of things, you know, trying to prevent us from becoming unified and right. and and working together. So I understand why it's a struggle, but I but I think we you know we just got to keep the the fight up. And and like I you know my sense of joy comes from my two sons and uh you know just seeing them smile and not really knowing what's going on uh at this point you know i try you know they see here and there uh you know they're five and two um but you know that that's that's my sense of optimism and soraya know you've you've told about your sense of joy you find the joy in music um uh but we'll give you another shot at it too uh as we as we sign off, your your sense of uh, your source of optimism. I think my my source of optimism now, um, like a lot of it comes from women. Um, a lot of it comes from you know writers and thinkers and theorists um, who have been doing the work for decades. You know, I think it's amazing. Um, to see the work of Angela Davis mm. being taken seriously, you know, when we say defund the police, when we say abolish the police, abolish prisons, you know, we're talking about the work that uh, of ideas that Angela Davis has, has put forth. Um, you know, when I think about our situation here in New York, um, where, you know, I think it's easy to get down you know, when you see sort of these pissing contests between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, you know, and neither one of them are really helping. Um, There's a recognition that, you know, things don't necessarily have to be that way. (laughs) Right. Um, That that we don't necessarily have to, uh, and, and a lot of times cannot, um, rely on on these men to get things done, you know? I mean, I don't know that there's any sort of greater vote of no confidence <laughs> that, you know, a mayor can get than when his own Black daughter is protesting against the police that he keeps defending. Right. Um, so I would say that Kiara de Blasio gives me hope. <laughs> I, like, I like that. There you go. I like that. I like that. That's a T-shirt. <laughs> I like to. Hey, listen. Um, I guess is Soraya McDonald. Uh, proud to say she's my colleague. Uh, she's a cultural critic at the Undefeated, and um, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human being. I can hear you talk just forever because you're very measured and passionate, and uh, 
just profoundly thoughtful. So it's always great to hear you and have you on the show, listen to your 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 critiques uh, on NPR. Um, like I said, though, if I'm coming to my first play, you're not invited to the open day. You'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll come to five, you'll, or, or I'll show it to you at a private screening first, just okay. me and you. So I'll, <laughs> so I'll, be, so I'll be prepared. <laughs> yeah. So Bill, you know, I love you, but please don't produce this. Don't. <laughs> hey, Sarai, thank you so much. You're, you're, you're the best. And uh, also to you, uh, Aaron, uh, thank you so much. You know, uh, love you madly. Great respect for uh, the battles that you're fighting at CNN. Um, yeah, but we all, be- that's another show. We all belong to, you know, corporate journalism is is a whole thing. It's great for the regularity of the check, but yeah. uh, but you do pay. It's not free. There's some trade-offs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> some trade-offs. Uh, and Jamal, Jamal's somewhat independent, you know, kind of, you know, somewhat independent, right? Jamal, Jamal. somewhat. Somewhat, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever, 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 yeah. however, as much as you can be, really. Yeah, right, as much as anybody can be. I mean. All right, anyway, hey, listen, all of you guys, Ryan, Jamal, uh, Aaron, thank you guys so much. Have a great weekend. Our hundreds of thousands of listeners, thank you so much for hanging in there, and God bless. See you oh, next thank week. Thank you. for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.